Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Get a chair, grab a seat, or we'll sweep you off your feet. We move, we groove, you got mail. Ease your legs, rest a while, all you gotta do is smile. We're swell, can't you tell you got mail? When the show begins, you better hold on real tight. Or before you know it, you'll be high as a kite. Take a break, settle down, we're the only show in town. SRO, don't you know you got mail? Give it up, don't think twice, we're a hurricane on ice. What the hell, give a yell, ring your bell, show and tell. Mademoiselle, give a smell, you got Mel. You've got Mel. And Mel has the incredible That's really classy, I like that. Yeah, Paul Simon helped me, but he didn't want any uh, credits. I I could tell, it was sort of in the background there, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Harold, Harold Underdown. Uh, that's a that's an interesting name for for a Jewish guy. Well, I I came by my my Jewish heritage in the usual way. I married into it. Oh. <laughs> okay. And and the name Underdown is it's actually one of those geographic names like Underwood or Underhill, and mm-hmm. except that there aren't as many downs as there are woods or hills, so there aren't as many Underdowns. So um, and okay, so so now's the time to tell us all about yourself. One second. When was the last time you were interviewed like this? Uh, well, I've never been interviewed specifically on Facebook Live, but I, I did do a video interview a couple of months ago. Okay, and what was that about? That was that was very specifically about publishing trends. Ah, okay. We won't talk about publishing yeah, trends. Kind of boring stuff. I don't know what they are. Either. So, <laughs> so, so tell us about you, Harold. That's a very general question. Can you can you narrow that down a bit? Yeah, about your life, how you ended up being a, uh, a world-renowned children's book editor, stuff like that. Okay. Um, well, where should I start? Should I start after college? No, start as a kid. Oh, okay. So uh, you're an editor of children's books, right? Well, I was I was a child once. That's very true. I I I was a faculty brat. My my dad taught at um, a, a few different universities and we moved around. Um, and I think a combination of, of being in an academic family where books were a complete feature of, of pretty much every room in the house. My mom, by the way, was a PhD as well, though she did not, she did not pursue a career in the way my, my father did. You're allowed to say that your dad was a professor of what? He was a professor of English history, specifically focusing on the period around the English Civil War. And he, he was also English himself, and we had family in England, and he had research interests in England. So one of the features of my childhood was going back and forth to England every year or two. But I, I think a combination of the moving around and the being in a, a book-loving family meant that I was a reader at a pretty early age, and books were important to me. And in fact, I, I still remember and talk about the the two picture books that um, I really cared about as a small child, which of course were Harold and the Purple Crayon and Ezra Jack Keats' The Snowy Day, which, which to this day I, I believe are paragons of the picture book art. And I will happily talk about The Snowy Day in particular uh, in, in detail to demonstrate that, but I won't do that now. Okay. Um, so we moved around. Okay, and, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Your mom, PhD in what? 
PhD in English literature. She studied Sir Philip Sidney and she wrote her thesis on the Arcadia, which, which is an interesting, very long narrative, a prose narrative. In, in some ways, it's a forerunner to the, the, the first English novels. Um, it's also uh, just full of weird courtly stuff, but it, there you go. So were you really a brat or you were just being uh, facetious? Well, faculty brat is the term, you know, that you use for someone whose family moved around because of the university. Well, I, I can't see you as a brat. What, what no, kind I, of... I wasn't a brat. I was, I was probably too well behaved for my own good, actually. Um, but it's, it's like military brat. You know, you move around, you go to different bases because your, your parents in the military. Same thing. Yeah, mm. it, it's not a judgment on the, on the individual. Okay, so you you, uh, you you were you a bookworm? Did you? Uh... I, yeah, I would say I was, and and I I read a lot of stuff. I mean, once once I got a, got away from picture books, and I remember I read um, all of the Encyclopedia Brown books that I could get my hands on. And I, I think I got those through through a, a school book club. You know, I don't know if it was Scholastic back then, but it was that same cheap paperback with with the really bad quality paper. But I didn't care because I, you know, I, I would read the book a few times until it basically fell apart, and then you were done with it. Um, so Encyclopedia Brown, and I was very much into Tom Swift, which was one of those series like the Bobsy Twins and Nancy Drew, except it was a, a a kind of generic science fiction thing. And Tom Swift was probably a somewhat in Randian character. He was this American. Uh, genius inventor and businessman. And, and every one of the stories was about Tom Smith inventing something. So, you know, you'd have Tom Smith and his atomic toothbrush. There were, there were a lot of atomic somethings. They, they thought atomic was good back then. Uh, and I just, again, I would sort of read through those and then, and then move on. But, but I also did read good stuff. Like I remember one of the uh, wonderful books that I got exposed to early as mainly as a result of our, our travels to England was a book called The Children of Green Know by L.M. Boston, which is this amazing magical story of a, a small boy visiting his great grandmother at an ancient manor house in the Norfolk Broads and the adventures that he has there coupled with the family stories that she tells him. It's a very unusual book. And I, I just, you know, I love to get lost in stories like that. So and, when I was reading Sherlock Holmes, you were reading good stuff. Oh, I was reading Sherlock Holmes too. Thank you for reminding me of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I got into Sherlock Holmes as well. Sherlock Holmes is good stuff. Um, I, I think I, at some point I was, I was given the, you know, the collected Sherlock Holmes, which was this really thick book that had every story, even the ones that weren't very good. And, and I, I think that must have been like a present when I was hmm, 11 or 12, something like that. Yeah. So Harold, so in your honor today, I'm wearing my purple uh, shirt. Because, That's purple. Uh, yes, it looks because a little I, on my screen. I know, but it, 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 um, it's in honor of, uh, you know, Harold and the purple crayon. And, right. um, is that why they named you Harold? Is that why they named the book Harold? No, the no, no. There's, there's actually no connection. I mean, my my name Harold. There, there's there are different stories about that in the family. Um, now, the the main reason is probably that my grandfather on one side was Harold, though huh. he was Danish, so it was H A R A L D. But um, that was he, my mother's was father. What? He was Danish, so. His name was spelled H-A-R-A-L-D. Danish, that's another children's book connection. Well, Hans Christian Andersen, sure. Um, anyway. all sides, man. The, the, the other story, though, is that, that I was named Harold after a, a cricket player that my father venerated, Harold Gimblet, or possibly after Harold Wilson, the labor politician. But I, I think those are stories that were made up after the fact. As somebody in your family venerated Wilson? Sure. My okay. father was a labor, labor party supporter his entire life. Okay. I can, I can, I can go with that. Given, given, the, given the Tory record in Britain. Uh, yeah. But we're not going to yeah. go into politics. No, no, we're not going into politics. <laughs> so, um, so, so, yeah. Yeah, so, so I, you know, that, that love of, of reading stayed with me 
really through school, um, I, I branched out. I got into Ursula Le Guin. I discovered the Earthsea books when I was, I believe, in high school. Um, and I started exploring kind of what I would call the more interesting and challenging science fiction and fantasy. That was, that was a big personal interest of mine. Um, and of course, when I went to college, I was an English major. And when I was done with college- Did you have studied atomic physics? No, I, I kind of turned away from Tom Swift. Uh, although I, I did like science, I actually enjoyed science at the high school level. But I, I, when I got to college, most of the science courses were, were occupied by people who were in, in a pre-med program and they were very competitive, and I just didn't want to even get into that. And who wants to hang out with occupiers? Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to be competing with pre-med students. Okay. So you went into so, literature. So I went into liter literature, and, and I did not do the typical thing that, that an editor does, which is you graduate from college with your English major degree, and you get a job as an editorial assistant at a big publisher in New York, and you just go on from there. I didn't do that. I didn't have any idea at that point that I wanted to go into publishing. I thought I wanted to go into teaching. And after a couple of years of doing other stuff, including getting, getting an actual degree in teaching, um, I made an attempt at teaching. I, I moved to New York and-, and One second, you moved to New York from where? Well, that's a little complicated and I'm just gonna skip over all the details of that, but basically, indirectly from college to New York with a few years in, it, in, in between doing various things, okay? Because it, it's, it's boring. Um, that, that means that you were a spy. The key thing was I ended up in New York, right? Which is where you want to be, right? So uh, I, I found that teaching was not something that came naturally to me, at least not with third and fourth graders, which is where I ended up. I loved working with kids on reading. I loved putting a classroom library together. I was a great reader out loud. I did a particularly good uh, performance reading out loud from James and the Giant Peach. And I gave it all the British accents. So that was fun. But, um, but you know, that's, you can, you can only spend so much class time reading out loud, unfortunately. So I was not a great teacher. And fortunately, I had, I had through a family connection, I had a connection to somebody who had a connection to somebody who was looking for an editorial assistant at a big publishing company. And, and that's how I got started after this sort of detour into teaching. But the detour into teaching was actually in some ways a very good experience for me because I saw books being used in the classroom. I saw kids, you know, improving their reading skills. They weren't third and fourth grade, they already knew how to read, but they were still getting better at it. And I saw how that worked. And from some of my coursework, before I started teaching, I learned about this interesting theory called reader response theory, which is a different way of understanding reading than the usual literary criticism one where we talk about plot and character and we analyze things. Um, in reader response, which is a theory that comes out of uh, educational psychology, primarily, you look at how the reader interacts with the text and the way that the text sparks responses, feelings, memories, associations. And that really helped me understand the fact that the, the reality that when you're, you know, when you're writing a story, you can't completely control how the reader is going to react to it. And in fact, you want the reader to kind of make the story their own and imagine stuff beyond the mere words on the page because it just makes it a much richer experience. And that happens, it happens all the time, it happens naturally. And the, the, the writers who have the knack of, in many cases, it's just an intuitive process. Uh, the writers who have the knack of taking into account reader response at the particular reader level they're working with, because it's going to be different. You know, kids at four years old are going to 
have very different responses to what they're reading than kids at 14. Um, but if you haven't have a knack for that age group that you're writing for, then you know you're going to be great with your writing and with your stories. Um, and that was something that it took me a while to kind of really go back to that theory. Um, but I've come to incorporate it very much into my practice as an editor. And it's something that I talk about on a regular basis when I'm doing workshops or, uh, you know, working even individually with folks on, on their writing, that the importance of remembering that the, the reader is not a passive, uh, a passive pair of eyeballs, just taking in what you're, what you're giving them. They're, 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 they're interacting with your text. Okay, which maybe is one reason that people have different uh, reads on different texts. Exactly, everybody, every reader is different. And inevitably that means that every reader is gonna have a different response to a particular story. Now they're gonna be some common ground, you know, um, but they're also gonna be their own idiosyncratic differences. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I like to read passages from books to, to writers that I'm doing this a presentation about this on and, and ask them to just not think about the plot or the voice or any of that fancy stuff, but just what it's evoking in them. And when I read to them from the opening pages of that book, The Children of Green Know, that I mentioned, it's, it's this boy traveling to see his grandmother and he's on uh, a train that is traveling across the flooded Norfolk Broads. And it's, they're just, you know, it's just kind of gent gentle floodwaters. It's something that happens every year, nothing particularly dramatic about it. It's, it's treated in the story clearly as this very routine thing. The train just goes through this standing water. And I read this once uh, to a group in Iowa just after they had had big floods. And one of the people in the audience, and I, you know, I asked for responses, and one of the people in the audience said, well, I was just terrified for that little boy. He's heading into those floods. How, you know, what's gonna happen to him? And I thought, that's really interesting. You know, here's something that she's bringing to this story that really is affecting the way she's reacting to it. Now, fortunately for her, if she'd read, read on into the story, she would have seen that the little boy was met at the train station by someone and was taken care of. Um, but, you know, that was not a response that the author of that book would have expected. And yet it was a completely legitimate response because it was based on that person's personal experiences. We can go back to your, the book that you love, the snowy one. Absolutely. Where, where you, you get all sentimental when you read it, but when I read it, because I grew up in Ottawa, where it snows about nine months a year, I just say, so what? It's snowing. <laughs> show me, show right. me some grass, Harold. I want right. to see grass. That's right. exciting. <laughs> right. I mean, that snow, the snowy day is another good example. The very beginning of the story, Peter wakes up and looks out the window, and it's snowing. And he gets dressed and goes outside. And there's nothing in there telling you what his reaction is. It's all about what he does. Mm -hmm. But for a small child who grew up in a part of the United States, admittedly, that's where it's set, right? A part of the United States where snow is an exciting moment. It's an, it's an occasion. That part of the story, that child is going to be feeling what Peter was feeling that child's going to be excited, and and they'll and they'll go into the story in the same frame of mind that Peter, the main character, is, and then we'll be reacting to the story along with him. So, yeah, that's a, that's another example in a picture book of how our experiences can affect how we respond to a story. So, so Harold, I've been your student. You're also your private student. A good student, uh, too. Well, thank you. Uh, this program is about you, though. 
you're you're a remarkable uh, mentor, and uh, I can I can say a few words uh, about uh, your from my from my eyeballs as as someone who um, is so gifted at separating the hay, which in my case there is a lot of, from the chaff. Uh, it's it's remarkable the, the work that you can do, and and to be um, helpfully critical while not being ever hurtful, and that singles you out as a remarkable mensch. Well, that's 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 what I try to do. Yeah, but here's the question I've been asked. I've been dying to ask you for six months since we started. I don't know, is it six months? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, why don't you write? You know what, I. I don't enjoy writing. I, I love working with people on their writing and I'm, I'm perfectly happy to write practical stuff, you know, at everything from editorial letters to um, articles that I'm gonna put up on my website or something like that. But uh, the, I don't have the impulse to write creatively. It's never been something that particularly grabbed me and I often find when I'm writing anything more substantial, like when I went through writing my idiot's guide, that it is not an enjoyable process for me. Um, it's not something I feel driven to do. And given that, I'm just, I just, I'm not interested in doing it. Um, I, I get a lot more satisfaction from working with different writers on many different stories than if I were to kind of struggle with the process of creating a story myself. You know, I've, I've actually had a hand in probably at this point hundreds of books uh, and I couldn't have written that many anyways, even if I dedicated my life to doing that, right? So I'm perfectly happy not to have been actually writing myself. And, and the, my next question is, did you fall into children's publishing uh, from the get-go, or is this something you chose? Well, like I said, I, I thought I was going to be a teacher uh, out of college. Wait, but was your first job a, a children's editor? It was, absolutely, yeah. When, when I decided that teaching was not for me, um, I knew that I wanted to work in children's books because that's what interested me. Uh, I had been working with children's books, and in fact, I, this, was in, this was in the late 80s, I had been working with, um, you know, a classroom of kids in New York City, very diverse classroom of kids. And I had been struggling. One of the things that I discovered as a teacher was it was difficult back then to find books in which my students could see themselves. And so one of the things I wanted to do when I got into publishing was to find more books for them, to create more books for, for the students that I had been working with. And, and that's definitely been something that has stayed with me as one of my goals as an editor. But, um, you know, I also had, I had other interests. I, I liked nonfiction and, and I've always worked on doing nonfiction. And, uh, you know, I pursued different things, but, but that initial goal just kind of coming out of teaching and, and knowing what was needed, um, at least in my school at that time, has, has stayed with me. Okay. Um, what would you like to tell aspiring children book writers? What would be your, your messages? Wow. Um, there, there are a number of things I do tell aspiring children's book authors. And I think the most important one is just to keep writing. I, I think a lot of people, they'll, they'll have an idea for a story and they'll write that and then they'll want to immediately send that out and get it published. And people with more experience know that it just doesn't work that way, that you need to learn the craft. And one of the ways you learn the craft is not by just writing something down and sending it out immediately, but by going through the revision process, getting feedback from other people, ideally from a critique group or, um, or a teacher or 
a writer friend who you trust, but even without feedback from others, there are revision techniques you can use to kind of work over your manuscript and, and examine it and, and take it apart and put it back together again to make sure that you're really getting it to the level that it needs to be at. Because let's face it, children's book publishing is extremely competitive. It, it, it always has been. It's gotten even more so. Well, let, in- let's, talk, let's talk about the numbers then. Uh, sure. I figured out that a, a children's book agent gets between five and 10,000 pitches or what we call queries a year. Right. Between five and 10,000. Right. Right. How, Which many, how, many, how many new authors do they take a year? Very few, probably fewer than 10. And that sounds really discouraging when you look at it purely in terms of the numbers. But I actually wrote a piece about this, about the odds and whether you should be concerned about the odds. Because of those, let's say it's 10,000, of those 10,000 queries and 10,000 manuscripts, it, it's very likely that, first of all, at least 90% of them just weren't good enough, that they, people had just sent them out before they were ready it, it will be very obvious early on to anybody reading the, the query letter that it's just not, it's just not good enough. Okay, Harold, that brings us down to 1,000 here. That brings us down to 1,000. Okay, so of the remaining 1,000, another 90%, the, the agent will just not be interested in. It'll be well-written, but uh, it's just, you know, I've seen this before. Uh, or it's something the agent doesn't do. I mean, there a lot of people disqualify themselves because they send a picture book manuscript to an agent who specializes in young adult. So that's, you know, that's another several hundred right there, straight, straight back out again. So you end up probably with a hundred that the, the agent actually is seriously considering. Harold, that's, you, you've just trashed 99%. Yes, I have. Mm-hmm. That's Based right. Yeah, that's right. And that's because those 99%, they, they didn't do the two key things. They didn't work on their manuscript until it really was ready. Or, you know, frankly, there are manuscripts that you may just at some point say, I don't know what to do with this. I, you know, I'm not going to bother with it. Writers do that all the time. Picture book writers who I know, just to focus on picture books for right now, they'll, they'll come up with 20 possible ideas for a manuscript in the course of a year or even more. And they'll start writing half of them and they'll finish writing two of them, right? So, you know, you filter stuff even before you, you send it out, hopefully. So people who don't filter and revise and people who don't do research and disqualify themselves because they're sending the wrong material to, the, to, the, to that particular agent that that's why you get, yeah, 99% just get disqualified pretty easily. You know, even if the agent isn't reading the queries themselves, if they've got an assistant who's been working with them for six months, it's still at that filter point, it's not difficult to filter out the 99%. And that leaves the agent with 100 that they're going to seriously consider. And I think that makes the odds a lot better for you. If you look and at it. It makes the odds about one in a hundred. One in a hundred, but it just needs to be that one manuscript that really speaks to that agent. And at that point, it's not even about the odds anymore. Mm-hmm. It's that you've, you've got the, the, the agent's attention. You've got them engaged. They've gotten excited about your manuscript and bam, they know they want to work with you as a client. And then the odds just go completely out the window. And, you know, that's, you know, that's the best I can do with that when it comes to the odds. If you find that whole idea of that process of going through those filters, if that just seems impossible to deal with, I, I can completely understand it. But it's what you have to go through. And it's just a process. And at a certain point, you either go through it or, frankly, you become a hobbyist. You know, someone who writes stories 
I, I, so of the people, yeah, of the people. Okay, so there are people like me who are masochistic. Yes. Who uh, who keep up. Now, there's another thing you didn't talk about. And that is, um, most agents take on people that they've, they've met at a conference, or that That's somebody, or that somebody has written. You know, another writer has said, "Hey, you should check out Fred. He's really good." You know, the whole personal connection thing does happen, and and you should certainly, if you have the opportunity, and if you're ready for it, you should take it. But I, but it's not the only way. And if you only focus on personal connections, you're limiting yourself. I think actually that the field now has opened because uh, there's very few. Uh, there's very few fairs and exhibitions and conferences. Well, there's that certainly makes a difference this year in particular. But even even you know even if we go back to what used to be normal, mm-hmm. my advice is still, you know, you've really got to. What I tell writers is the the writing process doesn't end with a finished manuscript. It ends with submission, and even that may only be a temporary end because once you've sent your manuscript out on submission you may be putting it into a whole process that ends with it being published. So, you know, you go from idea to early draft, to revised draft, to finished draft, and then to query. It, it all has to go together. And if you look at it that way, then I think it helps with, the, with, with kind of dealing with the fact that there is this, frankly, Byzantine and and daunting process of submission. Just build it into your build it into your thinking about writing. That at least you know at least once you get to the point where you feel like you've got stuff you're going to want to submit, you may initially feel like you're learning the craft and you're not focusing on submission. But once you get to a certain point, submission is something that is going to happen at the end of the process. So, so, Harold, what I think is that um, to an extent you're right. Um, you have to, uh, at every age, including mine, improve your craft, improve your stories, and um, you know, and send in um, to agents. But you know, um, let's say that she's going to pick, uh, and it's usually a she, is going to pick one out of a hundred. Right. But she's interested in a book on leprechauns. So you have to you have to be very lucky, and you have to realize that she's looking for a book on leprechauns because they don't always say that, and um, you have to have a really good book on leprechauns because she's seen she's already rejected fifty over the past month, right? Right. Right. So here, here's the I have two questions now. Okay. What I run into um, as, as somebody who's helping writers in their first stages to avoid all of these pitfalls is that a lot of writers, and I was included in this, is, you know, you write something, you say, oh, it's great, you know, what's the problem with writing a children's book? It's so easy, you know, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's, it's kids' work, really, you know, you write something, you know, um, yep. and uh, you think the whole world is going to fall over, you know, because you've written the story about the spaghetti you wanted to be licorice, and um, you don't understand and then you end up, what, self-publishing and losing thousands and thousands of dollars. So run me through this and how we can avoid when, when people are so certain there's no craft involved. Well, I mean, that's something that, that beginners do I'm, because you just don't know. You haven't gone through the process. You don't know what the market's like and how people are going to react. And so what I always tell people is, when you're just getting started, it's really important to be getting feedback from other people and not just from, you know, your neighbor down the street, but from a critique group, which has the purpose of giving feedback or from a trusted critique partner or possibly from someone, you know, who has some kind of professional connection, like a librarian or a teacher. Um, that yeah, I, I came to you after critique people right. bullshitted me. You know, I, I, I believe in critique groups less than other people because well, you're, you're not going to write to somebody you don't know and say, oh, you know, this is really shitty. So, so <laughs> you know, let me, let me just stop you a second because I've heard this story from other people too. And, and that, is, that is true. 
there is a limit to what a critique group can do. And, different, and also different critique groups have different levels of ability and standards. So yes, you may find that your critique group is not being sufficiently harsh. Um, you also find your critique group is being overly harsh. Uh, you know, these things can happen, but the critique group, even with all its flaws, has been, and I've seen this happen for dozens of writers, a critique group is a really useful tool given, you know, given the reality of the publishing business and how it works. That it's, it's kind of like the critique group is the way station between the individual writer and the business. It's not gonna take you all the way there by itself, but a really good critique group, and I've seen this happen, a really good critique group can actually evolve. Uh, you know, critique groups can start out where everybody in the group is a beginner, but they stay together and they all learn and they raise each other up. And I, I, know, I know groups where, you know, four out of the original six members ended up getting published because, because over the course of years, they worked together and they learned. And of course, that doesn't always happen. In fact, it probably only happens a small percent of the time. But other times, you know, maybe one person in the group will really benefit from being in the group. Other times, the group will be together for six months, people will learn a little bit from it, and then it'll fall apart. And then you try another group. Um, there's, it's not a perfect system, but if you try to do it all on your own, I, I think you're gonna have trouble. And then the only alternative is, you know, going to a conference once a year and getting a critique. And, and that's only gonna take you so far. Oh, but okay, um, but, but, but uh, I found the perfect solution and that's you. Well, I'm not. I'm actually going to disagree with you about that. I'm. I'm not the perfect solution for everybody. I was. I was a perfect solution for you because of where you were. That you had been working on your own and with and with also help from various people for years and years, and you'd gotten to a certain point, and you hadn't been able to get beyond that. And yeah, I will work with people in that kind of situation, but. Most people who, you know, who are just getting started, it's going to take you a while before you're going to hit that plateau. And you want, you want to get as far as you can on your own, partly because the learning process of working on manuscripts and revising them and learning your own processes, that's really valuable. And yeah, I'm happy to work with folks who need mentoring but it's not something that everybody needs early on. And it's maybe not something that everybody needs at any point. Some people are lucky enough that, you know, because of their critique group or because of their writing partners, you know, I, I know a lot of people who, especially once they got to a certain point, they started working with a kind of a writing partner who was another writer writing the same kinds of material and they would exchange manuscripts with each other and give each other feedback. And this would take them to a higher level, possibly, than working with a critique group. Okay, and, uh, but I, I certainly uh, think that uh, you are wonderful. Well, thank uh, you, thank you, you. You've helped me a great deal. Um, I, I, I gave you an impossible task, uh, which was to take almost 20 stories and pick a small handful, uh, and to do it kindly, which you did, um, because uh, you know a critique is a critique. Um, and, um, and you have this way of, um, of choosing words so that the person is not terribly offended. Um, <laughs> so, so I think that my, my last question for, for today, um, okay. before we start summing up, is um, what, what we talked about the eyeballs. But when you write a story for young children who can't read on their own, um, sure. then it's a bunch of different eyeballs, isn't it? That's right. That's right. So, so yeah. who are the eyeballs? Well, yeah. So when you're writing for a picture book age audience, for, for kids who aren't reading yet, <clears throat> then it's not eyeballs that are taking in the story. It's ears. 
And, and I, though the eyeballs are also active when it comes to the visual part of the story. But in, in the picture book experience, there's also the, the adult or older child who is reading to the younger child. And they're experiencing the story too. And they are influencing the way that the listener is experiencing the story. So yes, that makes it a little more complicated, but it's still, it's still, the, still a reality that the, the young child who is the, who is the key audience for that story, they're having, you know, they're having their reactions and responses as the story is being read to them. Okay. Also, look, you know, I, my favorite story was uh, Madeline by Ludwig Bemelmans. Oh, and, okay. uh, and, yep. uh, and my mom or dad chose that story. In other words, they're also the gatekeepers and the that librarians is. and the grandparents. Yep. So these, yep. you have lots of eyeballs when you're writing a, a book for young children. That you definitely have 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 to. I don't know necessarily keep it in mind, but it's definitely a reality that that as a writer for children, though you're writing for children and you should never forget that, your book has to go through multiple adult gatekeepers, starting with the gatekeepers at the publishing company. Yeah, that's true. And, and continuing out into the world through salespeople and booksellers and reviewers, and then the, the, the final purchaser or the person who picks it up off the shelf at the library. And by the time that's that's happened, you know it, it's gone through several several adults probably. Yeah. And um, so so Harold, um, do you feel? I guess this is going to be my last question. Okay. Talk about the Beatles. Um, is um, you feel that there's a special uh, legacy involved in working with children's books that other editors don't don't have? What What do you mean by a legacy? Well. You know, uh, Madeline changed my life. Mm -hmm. um, the stories I read or were read to me. Mm -hmm. these, these are life changers, you know. Sure. And, and, and you've had your, I would say your finger, but your whole hand in, in dozens and dozens of books, helping dozens. I, you're, you've helped hundreds of authors, maybe thousands. Mm -hmm. So there is a legacy here because these books right. go on to shape people's entire lives. Sure, I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about working in children's books, that any book that you work on could have that kind of life-changing impact or inspiration to the child who's reading it. And, and for many different possible reasons, you know, it could be something as simple as seeing themselves in, in a book for the first time and realizing, oh, you know, I, I can be in a story like this too. Um, it could be getting excited about a particular field of information, you know, like reading a book about the weather and thinking, oh, you know, this is something you can actually understand and learn about. There, there just, there's so many ways in which books have an impact. And, and I think we, all of us in the field, we all have that in the back of our minds and we're always making sure that we're producing the best possible book and that it's going to have a positive impact. You know, we, we may not, uh, we try to avoid being didactic, but there's so many other ways that books have impact just beyond teaching something um, that, you know, every, every book, even the simplest, sweetest bedtime story has unpredictable impact. So you just, you just try to do the best you can to make it be the best book it can be. So uh, Harold Underdown, I think that you are a remarkable human being. I still haven't figured out what makes you such a kind individual. You know why you're so kind? I, I don't think I'm that kind, but I, I, I'm glad that you think that. Okay, so that's... <laughs> One out of two. Um, and uh, so I, before, I mean, there's a lot of things I don't know about you. I don't know how tall you are. How tall are you? Six feet. You're a tall guy. I'm, I'm going to have to look up to you when we meet in <laughs> or Manhattan. Um, and uh, we, we do have to meet, you know. 
some point, yeah. So Mel, I, now I wanna ask you a question. I'm glad you mentioned Madeline. And I was gonna ask you about your, you know, your favorite childhood books. So, so after Madeline, which is a, a wonderful book, um, do you remember what was your, what was your first um, novel or chapter book that you read or that you can remember? The Hardy Boys. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. I was a glutton for, for the Hardy Boys. Okay, and that led to Sherlock Holmes. I have no idea what led to Sherlock Holmes. And this, this, this interview is about you, Harold. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, so we didn't talk much about music. Mm -hmm. Because usually when we're talking, you know, it's like very precious. Your time is precious. And, uh, and um, I'm trying to figure out um, how to be a better author. And, uh, a, um, and of course, find an agent, which is um, difficult anytime and especially now. But I'm working on it. And yep. you're helping me. Um, and, um, but I think mainly to be a better writer. Um, and it, it, what you've taught me is that um, you, you have to keep your eye on the ball of the writing. Like the, everything else is important, but the writing is critical. If you don't have a good story, you can't have a good query, you can't have a good agent. Write a good story. Yep. Um, so we didn't talk about music and, and you're younger than I am, but, um, um, but what about the Beatles? Are you a Beatles fan? Oh, yes. I mean, the Beatles were, when we were kids, the Beatles were a, a big, I don't know, just source of, source of happiness. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how exactly that got started. I think it might have gotten started with the Yellow Submarine, which, which came out when I would have been, I think, nine or ten. And, and it, was, it was a movie that my mom felt she could take all three of us to. I was the oldest of, of three brothers. You went to see that movie? We went to see it in the movie theater. Everybody was smoking weed. Not in this one. This was, this was the family matinee. Uh. She, 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 was, there, was, there was a movie theater. We lived in, this was when we were living in Providence in Rhode Island. And there was a movie theater across the river in Pawtucket that, that had... Um, that had a family matinee, and and we we would routinely go to this movie theater to to see movies, and I remember we we went to see the Yellow Submarine, and and I think we all enjoyed it, including my youngest brother who would have been, I think four years old at the time, and I I think we probably at that point acquired the the soundtrack to the Yellow Submarine, and then we started buying other Beatles records. So the Beatles were probably the first uh, pop group that that I was into, and, and it was definitely a fan. But interestingly, it was a family thing. You know, all 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 the members of the family, probably not my father so much, but all the members of the family enjoyed the Beatles. And so, um, and then, so I have to ask you what your favorite Beatles tune is. My favorite Beatles tune. I know it's different. That's impossible. <laughs> uh, I mean. Hmm. I, I, I really. Okay, Harold, I'm going to give you a answer that question. Pick, pick one that you can sing. I, well, I can't sing any of them, so that's easy. Of course you can. Nope. What do you no. mean you can't? Um, I, I'm not a singer. Everybody's a singer. No, no, no. I'm an editor, not a singer. <laughs> I will teach you for free how to sing. Okay. Okay, so pick a song. Boy, um, well, here's uh, I, one of the ones that I like a lot. Maybe it's because of the publishing theme. Is is Paperback Writer? There you go. <laughs> you're, you're the second person on my show to pick that song, mm -hmm. and the other was probably uh, my, uh, one of my uh, authors. Uh huh. It's a, it's a, it's a song that speaks to people in the publishing profession. Yep. Yep. So um, it starts, Dear Sir or Madam, when you read my book. Yep. And I'm going to ask you now to sing it. And I'm, I'm not going to do that. And, and I will point out, though, that it, it's kind of a funny, it's a funny song because it, it exhibits um, quite a few fundamental errors in going about making a submission to a publishing company, which is one of the things that I think is funniest about it. So, so, so yeah, we should do a shtick sometime on that. 
I don't do shtick now. You can do shtick. Why say never, Harold? We're young. That's true. I don't do shtick yet. There, see, that's positive mindset. I don't do shtick yet. Exactly. Now, now that you've got metal, you know, the, sky, the sky's the limit. Uh, Harold Underdown, what haven't I asked you that I should have asked you? What haven't you asked me that you should have asked me? I don't know. I think you've pretty much covered it. You know, I, you got my you got my whole publishing focus right out there, and and my childhood. Um, I don't. I, know, didn't, you I didn't get your thanks. I know what you haven't asked me. You haven't asked me what I'm reading. Okay, what are you reading, Harold? Uh, well, I'm reading. I'm rereading because I'm finding it very hard to focus on new stuff these days. Surprisingly, um, I'm rereading Lee Bardugo's Grisha trilogy. And I'm on the third book, which is called Ruin and Rising. And this is, this is a YA fantasy trilogy um, with a really wonderful um, magic setup um, and a, an interesting cultural setting. The, the, the main society that, that is the focus of these stories, though it, there are other societies on the world that, that she imagines. The main society is kind of loosely based on, on 19th century Russia. So it's this 19th century Russia where, where people can do interesting kinds of, of personal magic. It's sort of a, a quality that you have in you and that you can train. Um, some people can, can, make, can create winds. Some people can move water. They're called tide makers and they can move water in different ways. Um, some people can affect other people's bodies. They can stop your heart or they can heal you. It, it's, it's very, it's great. And, and it's a really great good and evil story, big, big story with people you care about right in the middle of it. So I recommend it. Okay. Harold Underdown, I recommend you. Thank uh, any any writers of children literature? Um, he's one of the remarkable people in the world to turn to get for help. How was that for a promo? That was a great promo, Mel. Thank you. And you you're you're very good at doing this. I, I want to thank you for being a good interviewer. Well, thank you very much. But um, you know, it, it's all about you, Harold. So um, thanks very much. I, I, I like I'm. I don't want to let you go, but I, uh, I have to. Um, and uh, we'll talk uh, later. We have, uh, we have mountains to climb. We do. Thanks for having me, Mel. It's been Thank fun. Thank you so much. Hold on to down. You've got Mel always. <laughs> Take care.